Weighing Machine was created to help you, the financial advisor or investor, reach your long-term financial goals. Each episode, your hosts, Rusty Vanneman and I, Robin Murray, cut through the market glamour to find the time-tested principles that help investors succeed. The Weighing Machine is inspired by the classic investing saying attributed to Benjamin Graham. The stock market is a voting machine in the short term and a weighing machine over the long run. In other words, emotion and expectations drive short-term market movement, but fundamentals and valuations determine returns over time. Welcome to The Weighing Machine. Enjoy, and as always, let us know what you think. On the podcast today, activist investing. What does it mean and why is it good for investors and society? We will discuss the power of shareholder votes, bringing back common sense to capitalism, and the reindustrialization of North America. That's with our guest, Jennifer Grancio, Chief Executive Officer at Engine Number no. One. Welcome to Wang Machine. I'm Rusty Vanneman. And I'm Robin Murray. Okay, let's start with a look at the markets. Rusty, what are you watching for at the moment? Well, to timestamp this, we are recording this in mid May. And to me, the interesting stat right now, which I think is really remarkable, is that if you look at individual investor sentiment as defined by the American Association of Individual Investors, it has only been positive twice in the last 58 weeks. Never in the history of this weekly survey that goes back to 1987 have we seen such constant and persistent negativity. Not during COVID, not during the great financial crisis, not any time during the last 35 years. Now, I would say, granted, there are a lot of things to be negative about, but you could say there always is. But the market is up smartly this year. It's up over the last year, last three, five, and 10 years. The numbers all look good. Bottom line, investors might not be buying, but there are a lot of interesting, and I would say good things going on. There are also some interesting investment strategies that are doing good, including some we will discuss with our guest today. All right. Well, let's bring her in. Jennifer Grancio is the Chief Executive Officer of Engine Number no. 1 in San Francisco. Jennifer, welcome to The Weighing Machine. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, good to have you. Jennifer, nice to have you here. And our custom to get the podcast started is to ask for somebody's walk-up song, a song that we can hear to kind of set the mood for our interview. What is your walk-up song? I think my walk-up song for this year is The End of the World as We Know It by R.E.M., <laughs> which is because, because it's a song that uh, dark overtones like the world that we live in, but I think we got to be a little optimistic and look for solutions. That is a perfect song for investor sentiment right now. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> All right. That's awesome. All right, uh, Jennifer, so let's talk about your background. You've got 19 years at BlackRock on your resume before you headed out on your own to found Grancio Capital and then, of course, on to Engine Number no. 1 in 2020. So tell us more about your career and what you do in your current position at Engine Number no. 1. Thanks. So I went to school thinking I was going to do international relations, uh, maybe go work at the World Bank. And, you know, you sort of come to the end of your undergrad and realize maybe you should get a job and pay off your student debt. Uh, and so after school, I went into consulting and I actually ended up in asset management and financial services. And right from the beginning, I found this idea of well done wealth planning and saving and kind of management up for other people, right? is a pretty amazing thing because if you get the portfolio construction right, if you make good decisions on the widget that goes inside portfolios, then you know end investors who maybe find investing scary, 
it's not their thing. You can create huge benefit for people just from the compounding and good portfolio construction over time. So I kind of got the bug early on. And then I was at Barclays Global Investors before we launched what was the iShares ETF business. And we just thought indexing was pretty cool. And the idea that you could create an institutional quality diversified tool to go into asset allocations and portfolio constructions, like institutions did this all over the world. And so why could you not do that for retail investors? So with that, I spent much of that 20 years at Barclays Global Investors and then at BlackRock on indexation, growing the global ETF market, and also a lot of time on portfolio construction. Because again, you know, I think the way you put the portfolio together makes a huge difference for the end client. BlackRock, I was there for a long time. BlackRock's large, very successful, great firm. But sometimes in financial services, innovation can't always happen at the largest firms. And so I left, I did some consulting for a couple of years, worked with a lot of terrific people who were running businesses and buying and selling businesses across venture, private equity, financial services. And then I met our founder, Chris James, about three years ago now. And my background is very much build a business, run a business, work with clients on the distribution side. And Chris's background is very you know, quintessential investor, investing in private markets and running hedge funds for his career. And we saw an opportunity to build a firm that was really looking forward in time to make sure that the average investor and in wealth portfolios could take advantage of some of these huge mega trends. And we can talk about this as we go. But engine number one was built to let people access the wealth creation and economic opportunity and some of these huge themes that are going to unfold, not looking backwards, but looking forwards over the next 10, 20 years. Right. And we do want to talk about those themes. But first, engine number one has really a fascinating backstory. It became well known a couple of years ago after winning a proxy battle with Exxon. Essentially, the firm won seats on the Exxon board and compelled it to sign on to reducing greenhouse gas emissions. Kind of a cool story. And that really put a spotlight on activist investing. So can you tell us more about how that happened and about engine number one and its mission? Yeah, absolutely. So Exxon for us was, and Chris anchored on this very early as we were kind of building the firm, was an example of a company that was destroying kind of financial outcomes for investors. And so we didn't approach it actually from a liberal or climate perspective. Primarily, we approached it from the perspective of when as investors, any of us are investing in a public company, governance always matters. So, you know, point one, um, if your CEO and your board are not doing what they're supposed to do, if they don't have the right capabilities, we should always expect that that shows up in kind of subpar, suboptimal returns. And so Exxon had a governance problem. And then also, if you think about these huge changes that lie ahead in energy, Exxon wasn't really reacting to what did they do in 20 years? How was Exxon successful in 20 years? And how did Exxon show the market capital discipline and how they were doing capital allocation? So how much money were they spending on five-year, on 10-year, on 20-year outcomes and which businesses? So what we did is different than sometimes what traditional activists will do where they'll focus on one very short-term financial outcome. And kind of we went big on asking for different capabilities in the boardroom. So capabilities where other people who had run up energy company successfully in the past, the board needed that. 
The board needed people that had managed companies through transition. The board probably could benefit from people that understood new and transformation technologies. And so we put that slate forward. And then we asked for more capital discipline on how and what Exxon was doing and investing in. And so with that sort of very economic return first argument, we held a very small percentage of the company in terms of our very small holding in Exxon stock. But we were able to convince a lot of other asset managers to come with us because other people wanted that outcome as well. And I think it was a moment in time where it really ignited a conversation from an investment community perspective around the fact that governance matters and some of these industries are in transformation that have these huge externalities. That's something that you have to consider when you're running a company that's in one of those sectors. Yeah. Yeah. So Jennifer, in engine number one, you talk about bringing common sense back to capitalism. And one of your key approaches is the total value framework, which is described as using relevant sustainability data to drive long-term economic value. How does that work? And how does it set you apart from other investors? Yeah, so we think that the capitalist system is a great system and it works. And our public companies kind of give us all mechanisms to engage with them and to drive long-term value. And so from a long-term capitalist perspective, if we're investing in public companies, we should be active. We should be working with companies driving long-term results. Something that happens sometimes in our markets is people get very focused on one quarter at a time. So one quarter at a time, how did you do? And are you going to have a better result next quarter? The problem with that sometimes is the time snapshot is too short for companies that we hold in our portfolios to deliver value 10 years and 20 years out. So total value framework for us is a way at looking at all companies but particularly companies that are in industries or spaces that are undergoing these huge transformations to understand not just what does the income statement look like this year, but how are companies dealing with their material risks? And so in the case of the energy sector, back to Exxon, if you have huge scope one and scope two emissions, we as investors wanna see your plan as you move through time on how are you running a business and making money? And are you able to lower your scope one and scope two or offset it over time? And so the total value framework is an approach that is really kind of going deep and being very, very specific with these big public companies on what their material risks are, because that's an important consideration as an investor. Yeah, great. So engine number one manages what has been described as a better index fund and also active thematics. Why do you believe investors need both a better index and some active? Yeah, so if you think about the average portfolio these days, the core of the portfolio is very often indexed and or it's using products like a value and a growth split in a portfolio. And if you think about indexing as the market has developed, the index assets have become very, very concentrated in a very few providers. And the downside of that, so if you want a diversified portfolio, if you don't want to pick your own stocks, indexing the core is a great solution. But you have to use the uh, back to the governance point. If we lock all the assets up in index funds that are so big that it's a little bit hard for a firm if you own 7% of a company to vote as aggressively as maybe engine number one might vote to release economic value. We just need some other index options out there in the market. And so we launched Boat, Boat's five basis point product, and we're very, very transparent on the governance and the voting every year. And so if there's a shareholder proposal that's in the economic interest of kind of long-term financial returns of the company, we'll look at that very carefully. And we will sometimes vote in favor of something changing at the company because if a proxy proposal can change something 
that's not ideological. It's not a nice to have, but it's something that drives long-term value. That's a tool we have as investors, and we should use that active vote, even in index products. So how does vote utilize its shareholder votes to drive long-term value? And what does that mean for investors? So if you think about the way that the public company system works, we have an opportunity as investors to have a conversation with the CEO and the board through the proxy voting process. And so some examples of what those proposals look like and how as investors we vote in favor of them. One example is in industries like energy, as investors, we'd like to see targets and we'd like to see transparency on emissions. And why is because the better we understand that and you compare that across company, we have a better ability to forecast how different companies are dealing with their material risks. So which company wins or loses or has a higher multiple over time. So a lot of the proposals deal with emissions. There are a lot of proposals the last couple of years, an increasing number that are asking for workforce disclosure. So we talk a lot, particularly right now in this country, we talk a lot about Do people matter and does DEI matter and workers and wages? And our take on it is imagine imagine two consumer companies that are basically competing with each other. If we as investors have information about company A and company B, and one company has better wages, more giving back to the community they're in, better training and benefits, it's reasonable that that company may outperform in terms of how it delivers to customers over time. But as investors, we need data. We don't want to just take a flyer on that. We need data on workforce disclosure so that we can then use that data to see which company is better than the others. So one of the places that in the U.S. market we have a real opportunity to use our votes is to ask companies for more disclosure in this area. So those are just a couple of examples. So I like to think I had a cool stat in my opening remarks, but here's another cool stat. So in 2022, the average S&P index fund supported 25% of ESG proposals, but the vote ETF supported nearly 90% of them. Please tell us more about the engine number one's proxy voting committee and its custom voting framework. Yeah, so vote is, as I mentioned, vote is trying to use the proxy voting process to vote in favor of things that help us drive value at companies. So that's how we think about it. And from an E and an S and a G perspective, let's decompose that for a minute. So G is governance. Governance always matters in public companies. And so sometimes the governance votes will be around a pay package for an executive. Sometimes the pay packages are tied to better financial results, sometimes they're not. So that's an opportunity where we would vote in favor of proposals that are giving us more information and better alignment of incentives. Another example would be on the workforce disclosure side that we talked about. So from a workforce disclosure perspective, it's gonna be very helpful to investors through time to be able to compare companies in the same sectors and see how they're treating workers so that we can then do research on whether it's causal or not. So that's another example in the social or S space. And then from an environmental perspective, we tend to vote in favor of things that are going to drive long-term value. So understanding in energy companies, their scope one and their scope two, understanding in product manufacturing companies, their scope three. Those are things that help us as investors understand the strategy and compare company to company within a sector. An example of something we didn't vote for. So something that the market would call an ESG proposal that engine number one did not support. And we saw this last year, we saw this again this year, are proposals that the banks not be allowed to lend to energy companies. And let's take that one for a minute. 
Banks' job is to lend. We're in an energy transition, so it's going to be many, many years before we get on the other side of kind of a clean energy or net zero energy environment. And so we really do, from a fiduciary and kind of functioning economy perspective, we do need the banks to finance the energy transition. And so that's an example of a place where we didn't vote in favor of a proposal. All right. Well, you have a broader theme on the reindustrialization of North America, and it's really fascinating. You published some interesting data about how global supply chains have dominated industrial production due to their low costs for a number of years. But since the pandemic and other global events, they're seen as high risk and more companies are basically trying to stay local. Can you talk more about that theme and are investors investing in it and why should they? Yeah, thank you. We love to talk about this. (laughs) And this is an example, a little bit of, if you think about how a lot of investors have approached themes or trends or ways to make money, a lot of our experience with that is anchored in technology products or, you know, the rise of Amazon and Google over the last 10 and 20 years. So what is reindustrialization? If you go back, go back all the way to the end of World War II and then march forward, what you'll see is from a consumption and manufacturing perspective, we pushed everything far away to the cheapest possible place. So things got further and further away, more globalized. And from a U.S. worker perspective, we lost 7 million jobs in the U.S. 7 million manufacturing jobs were lost from the U.S., And you see some of the downside and trauma of that loss of jobs in kind of the middle of the U.S. if you look at what's happened to cities and towns over that same period of time. So that's where we are. Now, if you fast forward, particularly with COVID, but also from sort of a geopolitical context perspective, supply chains broke in COVID. Mm -hmm. Everything was manufactured too far away. And companies, if you go back to just economics, companies in the U.S. that were trying to assemble a car or a tractor or whatever it might have been, couldn't get that underlying part that was made one place in the world and very far away. So we're seeing that that trend is already in progress. And so we're seeing companies come back and manufacture more of the components closer to home. And then with geopolitical tensions, we also have huge incentives in the US and in North America to manufacture things at home. So the CHIPS Act, for example, which is encouraging high IP manufacturing. And if you think about new manufacturing versus old manufacturing, there's a lot of semiconductors and there's a lot of robots, and this is a totally different environment than what it used to be. And so what does the future look like? It looks like all of these jobs coming back to North America. I think there's 300,000 jobs have already come back or been reshored. If you think about new factory being built, there's a multiplier of sometimes more than five times the number of the jobs in the factory. So 300,000 times five is now the number of jobs in a community as something gets reshored or brought back. So it's a huge, huge opportunity. And the way we invest at engine number one and at all of the transform ETF strategies that we run is we're looking at the very broad theme. So supply chains aren't just the port in Los Angeles, supply chains are railroads across North America and robotics and technology and chip companies and the materials that go into building new factories. It's a very kind of broad and exciting theme. So do people know about it? I think we're a little bit early in terms of the whole population being excited about the kind of rise of American competitiveness and reshoring. But as investors, we wanna be ahead and we wanna have that product ready for you so that you can find a way to invest in the market. And so our transform supply chain 
strategy lets people do just that. Okay, so let's switch gears now. This has all been super interesting, but let's talk about some of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests here on the show. And the first is considering all of your experience and the expertise that you have access to, what is currently your favorite investment idea? Well, we covered this a little bit, but my favorite investment idea is the supply chain and the reshoring. And I think this goes back to this, like we could be very sad about the world that we live in and some of the challenges ahead, or we can celebrate and take advantage of some of the opportunities. And so I do think there's a huge opportunity for jobs, for economic wealth creation in this reshoring of jobs and reshoring of manufacturing back to the US and North America. So that, that's my favorite one. Awesome. Another question we like to ask everybody is we all have an obligation to perform at a high level for our work and for our families. So how do you maintain your energy, both mentally and physically, to ensure you're performing at a high level professionally and personally? For me, I'm one of those people that likes to get out and exercise every day. And the act of doing something is that's my, my, for me and me, I'm a morning person where I get up in the morning, do some cardio, let my brain float a little bit. And then I've come back more focused and ready for the day. Nice. All right, here's another one. If you're thinking back on your career and the people that have influenced you and helped you get to where you are, who are some of those people that you are professionally thankful for? I have a lot of relationships where I have a a spot, like I learned something spot from one person. So some people come up through their careers and they have one or two mentors where sort of they learned from throughout the time that they, you know, were kind of coming up. I didn't do that. And maybe some of that was on me. I was one of those people when I was younger that thought you were just supposed to sit at your desk and do a job and things would magically work out. I definitely don't advise anyone to do that. You have to get up from your desk and ask questions and ask for help and build your networks. And I remember the consulting manager when I first started work out of school who said, you've got to talk in meetings. And then maybe it's uncomfortable, but if you don't talk, we don't know what you're thinking. And that's kind of how the world works. That was a very good early advice. I had a business professor at Columbia who said, women can have it all but they cannot have it all at the same time. So if your plan is to have hobbies and families and career, you can have all of those things, but think of it as like a pacing and a a strategy phasing conversation, which I thought was very helpful. And then lots, you know, all the wonderful people that I work with still today, it's like there's so much you can learn from different people based on what their towering strengths are. So always try to take advantage of tapping into lots of different people. Yeah. All right. Well, one more before we let you go. And that is, what are you reading and listening to at the moment? Do you have some recommendations for our listeners? So what am I reading at the moment is The End of the World is Just Beginning. We're reading that across engine number one. So Eli Horton, who is the portfolio manager on the active funds, recommended that to all of us. We're big readers here at engine number one. So better to learn as much as you can and and have perspective and take it forward. What am I listening to? My younger child's very into Ruth B right now. So And she's decided that she should memorize the lyrics to Hamilton. So in my head throughout the day, I hear those two (laughs) things, regardless of what I might otherwise listen to. (laughs) Thanks. All right. Well, Jennifer, thanks so much for coming on the show. And tell us how can listeners stay in touch with you and your team at Engine Number One? Just Google us. We're always putting new things out there. And then um, enginenumberone.com. And we have thought leadership and you can learn more about the strategies. Nice. All right. Awesome. Well, Jennifer, thanks for coming on the show today. I do have one more question. You sort of touched upon this earlier, but I just have to ask a little bit more about your team 
because some of my favorite people work at your organization too. Could you just tell us a little bit about your team? Yes, I would love to. So at and some of the rock stars on it. <laughs> at engine number one, you know, we effectively run an alternatives business and an ETF platform. And so on the ETF platform, we have Eli Horton, whose background is hedge fund manager, who runs the active ETFs. We have Molly Landis, who hails from BlackRock, who runs the ETFing of all of our strategy and runs the boat, the index fund. Yasmin from JP Morgan, Jason from BlackRock. We've got a great, great team. And then Yusuf George, who used to be at Just Capital, runs engagement for us. Awesome. Thanks. All right. Well, I think that's going to do it for this week. Thanks so much for coming on, Jennifer. And Rusty, take us out with your final words. Invest well and be well. We'll be back soon. Thanks for listening to The Weighing Machine. And hey, don't forget to subscribe if you like this episode. And thank you for your time and trust in Orion Advisor Solutions. Thanks again for listening. Robin and I truly appreciate you giving us some of your valuable time. We hope to provide you in each episode something you can use in conversations or making decisions or both. If you like this podcast, you might also like some of our sister podcasts at Orion Advisor Solutions. First, we have the Wang the Risk podcast, which I host monthly. On behalf of Orion Risk Intelligence, this is where we consider various market scenarios regarding top of mind concerns among financial advisors and investors. Next, we have one of the top rated and most popular podcasts in the financial industry, especially when it comes to behavioral finance, Dr. Daniel Crosby's weekly standard deviations podcast. And when it comes to all things fintech, we also have the bi-weekly The Fuse Show with Ryan Donovan and George Figuera, two of the funniest guys in the industry. You will learn something and laugh in every episode. Last, when it comes to more content, including commentary, videos, and other resources, please check out the website, orionportfoliosolutions.com, go to the research drop-down menu, and go to the Financial Advisor Success Hub. Thanks again, invest well and be well, and we'll talk to you next week. The Weighing Machine is hosted by Rusty Vanneman, Chief Investment Officer at Orion Advisors Solutions, and me, Robin Murray, freelance writer and editor. If you have feedback or questions about our podcast today, please send us a note at rusty at orion.com. All opinions expressed by Rusty Vanneman and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and don't reflect the opinion of or endorsement by Orion, its affiliate subsidiaries, and its employees. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for legal, tax, and investment decisions. The opinions are based upon information that participants consider reliable.